Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. This week on our panel, we have Mark Erickson. Hey, friends. Nathan Hopkins. Hello, hello. So for podcasting purposes, should I call you Nate or Nathan? Uh, probably Nate. Most people professional on my professional life call me Nate. Family calls me Nathan, but everyone else calls me Nate. All right. We also have, well, I should introduce myself. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Um, I'm starting a new show called The DevRev. So if you're interested in that, um, check it out. Um, we're talking about developer freedom on that show. We have a special guest this week, and that is Sophie De Benedetto. I lived in Italy, so I'm going to like Italianize your name. Sorry. Sounds good. Yeah, you can call me Nate, too, if that doesn't work. <laughs> nice. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. So like you said, my name's Sophie, and I'm an engineer that currently works at the Flatiron School, which folks may have heard of. We are a started out as just a web dev boot camp, but we are super growing super fast. We've got lots of different courses, pioneering some data science stuff now. New Canvas is opening up around the country and also in London. So we're an international school as well. And lately there, we've been working a lot with Elixir and Phoenix. And I'm excited to talk about that today. Nice. So you kind of gave us a dual topic, and I, I think they're related. One is uh, JWT auth in Phoenix with Jokin. And, and I'm sure there's plenty to go through there. But the other one was the ups and downs of working with Elixir packages. You want to kind of give us some background there and talk about what you're you're dealing with there with uh, JWT tokens and... Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give you like the little TLDR of kind of what our work was like with Jokin and what problem we were trying to solve, why we ended up using this library. And I think some of the experiences we've had with that um, kind of put me in mind of this broader topic that I wanted to, to chat about and get your guys' thoughts. So we've been building out brand new Greenfield Elixir Umbrella app, which has been very exciting, uh, for a new partner organization that's going to be using some of our infrastructure to create content and put it in the hands of uh, graduate students at a couple of different graduate programs around the country. So we have to integrate with the authentication system of our partner org, and they're going to be using JWT, JSON web tokens, kind of coming through in an HTTP-only um, session cookie Fine, normal, good. So for my team, there's about four of us working on this app. We were all, myself included, pretty new to Elixir, pretty new to Phoenix, pretty new to Umbrella apps, but not new necessarily to JWT Auth, had done a lot with it in Ruby and React, et cetera. So we had some sort of frustrating experiences a little bit because you come from Ruby, and I think this is true of a lot of incoming Elixir devs. You come from Ruby, you come from Rails, and you have sort of this idea in your head of how you want something to work because you're like so familiar with it in Rails. So you sort of reach for solutions that you might reach for in Rails. You expect things to behave a certain way because you're used to it in Rails. And then you're very confused when it doesn't work that way. So that's definitely the story of 
our work with Jokin. So we were looking for some library in Elixir that would allow us to decode and verify these incoming jots. And of course, there's Guardian, which people may have heard of, and that's sort of like the go-to Phoenix token-based authentication library. But Guardian is like really, really powerful. You can do way, way more than just JOT authentication. So that would be, in our opinion, kind of one of those like hammering a nail with a wrecking ball solutions. What we really needed was just a hammer. We just need to look at JOTs, decode them and verify them. So we found this nice little library called Jokin, which was scoped exactly to the problem that we wanted to solve. But I think as is the case with a lot of Elixir packages and libraries, because everything is still so new, the resources just kind of really weren't there for it. The documentation seemed pretty robust, and I think it is and was, but there weren't a lot of other, you know, you weren't going to Google this and find like a bunch of helpful blog posts and stack overflow questions as you may be used to doing if you're working with Ruby or Rails or a more Mm -hmm. mature language. So we started working with Jokin, and the first kind of hiccup that we ran into was that the incoming jots were generated and signed with an ECDSA private public key pair, which is not maybe like the most common way. It's certainly very secure, but it's not the most common way to generate and digitally sign JOT tokens or JOTs. I think more often you'll see just like that one HMAC algorithm secret. So it's kind of like, I've got one password. I made my JOT. If you have the same password, you can decode the JOT. Instead, we've kind of we're storing the public key PEM file that goes with the private key that was used to sign the JOT. So we couldn't really find anywhere in the documentation or any other resources for specifically how to use Jokin to decode and verify a JOT that was digitally signed in this way. Uh, So we spent a ton of time sort of combing through source code. Like that was kind of the only resource that was really available to us after a certain point. And we ended up dropping down directly into Erlang. And that's one of the really nice things about Elixir, right? It has this native Erlang interoperability. So we were able to use uh, this Elixir kind of slash Erlang library called Jose, which stands for JSON object signed encryption, I think, to just kind of get directly what we needed to solve this problem of how do we kind of take the public key that's in a PEM file, load it into this nice little structure that we can use to to verify the keys that we were getting or the tokens that we were getting. So we got that working after several days of kind of trial and error and poking around in the source code, which was kind of frustrating. And we were really proud of ourselves and we wrote a blog post and I think you guys came across it and that's kind of how I came to be here today. So basically I'm out there telling the whole internet that we solved this problem. This is how you do it. And we're so smart. And isn't this so great? And then I noticed something actually like a couple days ago, I noticed that incoming requests were coming into our app. Our Jokin based authentication system was saying, great, you're valid. I've decoded you. Here's lovely information. But we would send the same token to our Rails app, our sort of monolith application. And that app was saying, no, this token is expired. Um, So I said, oh man. So it turns out that uh, the implementation that we had come up with was not verifying the expiration of the signature on the token. And we just didn't know and had no idea. And I think this kind of comes back to 
kind of coming into Elixir with these Rails or other language-based expectations, the Ruby gem that we're using in the Rails app to decode and verify tokens kind of gave you this token expiration verification for free anytime you call, let's say, the verify or the decode or whatever method. So I sort of expected I would get the same thing when I called Jokin's verify method, given that I had set up all these other previous steps. Totally not true with Jokin. You need to kind of create this custom verification function and explicitly tell it, I need you to care about the expiration date and don't finish decoding and verifying unless that's valid. So we fixed it and we updated our blog post and we sort of told people that we had told, hey, we missed something here. But I think it just kind of highlighted for me these sort of twin issues, right? In, in the Elixir community, it's a new community. So I think a lot of us are experiencing two things. A, sort of like incorrect expectations or seeing our work kind of colored by our experiences with more mature languages and frameworks. And B, we're also seeing like a lack of resources that we've come to maybe take for granted in other languages and other communities. And I think that we need to take it upon ourselves to really address that. So what I wanted to put out today was like, anytime that any of us have an experience like this, like I'm trying to figure this package out, I'm not finding anything. It took me four days. It was super frustrating. That tells me that you should write about it and you should tell everyone what you figured out and like slowly but surely we'll chip away at this problem. Well said. I'm yeah, there's a lot there. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot there. So a couple of things I just wanted to mention just for the listeners who may not be familiar with some of the terms that she was using. So JWT, we also just commonly refer to it as a jot. I don't know why, but that's what we do, right? So when you say jot, it's also JWT. It's a JSON web token, as she was mentioning. So you were mentioning that that the problem is you were seeing the ECDCA uh, key pair was being used, which is an elliptic curve cryptography. And typically you're seeing the HMAC one. Is that what the Ruby one was using or what was that? Yeah. So I mean, with, with any language, I'd imagine you can probably deal with and decode and verify jots that are signed with either approach. But in the JOT-based authentication that we happen to have set up in our monolith. And in my experiences with JOTs elsewhere, I don't know if this is a coincidence or what, but I've just always seen them signed and generated with the HMAC algorithm, which basically just means like I have one password and I'm using it to generate this key. And if you have that password, you can you have this key and you can sort of unlock the token versus the ECDSA private public key pair approach, which basically means I have a private key and I'm using it to generate it and sign this token. And unless you have the public key that is the partner to that private key, you can't unlock it and decode it. So when I was sort of casting around looking for resources on Jokin and on JWT Auth in general and Elixir, I was seeing lots and lots of stuff about the HMAC algorithm approach. And certainly most of the all of the joke and documentation showed these nice juicy examples of using the HMAC algorithm approach to create and then decode these tokens, but nothing on the ECDSA key pair approach. I will say like when I've used Joken before, it also was with the HMAC algorithm. So, you know, you are, you are on that kind of leading edge of, you know, kind of on a little bit on the fringe of what may be yeah. mainstream. And so you encounter these rough spots and that can be frustrating. And, and then, so you, You've done the service of saying, yeah, I, I figured it out. I got past the block and I'm going to actually take a little bit of extra, extra time to tell other people about it. I think that's great. Yeah, I can't help I myself. Totally I got to interject here. You're yeah, joking. Okay. 
carry on. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting feeling to kind of say, okay, we solved this problem. We want to put this out into the world. We want to help other people, but then be like totally wrong about it after evangelizing a particular solution. And I think that's, I'm sort of glad that that happened because I think one of the things that holds people back a lot from writing and putting out articles, whatever, you know, even giving talks, that kind of thing is just like this fear of being wrong. And as a teacher, that was like the number one thing that I would hear from students that were hesitant to blog. It's like, well, I don't totally get it. What if I'm a little bit wrong about that? To which I say like, you know what, go ahead and be wrong. Like best case scenario, someone else tells you how wrong you are, which means A, that they engaged enough with what you wrote to like actually test it out. And B, you, you learned something. You had your misunderstanding corrected. So I think that's another kind of hump that we have to really push ourselves to get over if we want Elixir as a community to really grow and thrive. So we, we talked a lot about the, the JWTs or JOTs and the encryption on there. One thing that I'm curious about is, you know, you put in here the ups and downs of working with Elixir packages. So how is this different from Ruby gems or NPM packages or, you know, whatever it is that people are familiar with? What are the good things and bad things that people are going to see here that they won't see in other places? Yeah, I mean, so I feel like anyone, I'm sure, will have some thoughts on this. But I think the the down part is very much what, what we've chatted about already, this problem where there just aren't as many resources as we're maybe used to seeing and as we've taken for granted, especially in the Ruby community, which is like so well established, so beginner friendly mm -hmm. um, and coming from Flatiron School, where at least for many years, less so these days, like our main focus for our students is often has been Ruby. So we make we make them write blog posts and kind of contribute resources out into the world. So I think we're really used to like basically finding an answer to any problem, almost any problem that we're facing with with Ruby and Rails from you know a couple Google searches it may take you a little while but you'll find a stack overflow question you'll find a blog post and you'll more or less be able to see how somebody else solved the same or similar problem and just kind of figure it out from there but elixir is a pretty new language it's still a very new and growing community so we're just kind of not seeing the same amount of resourcing that we're used to. So I think that's sort of like the, the downside of it. But the upside, in addition to all the other wonderful things about Elixir, is I think really highlighted one of the upsides with our work with Jokin, which is the Elixir Erlang interoperability. So we weren't able to figure out exactly how to get Jokin to do what we wanted to do, but we could get Erlang to kind of plug in that hole for us. And it's super easy. You don't even have to think twice about just running any little bit of Erlang code um, from the middle of your Elixir project. So that flexibility and that sort of backup, I don't know, backup language resource that you can just sort of plug in wherever was really nice to take advantage of there. I'm curious about Elixir at Flatiron. It sounds like you're, you're building some internal tools and, and maybe even some public facing um, websites or, or, or products uh, in Elixir. Yeah, where does it fit in the curriculum and like what percentage of your student body is choosing that track? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'll start by saying that we don't actually have any Elixir content in our curriculum right now. Um, although that's something that I know a number of us want to see in the future and might just kind of be starting some side projects to start putting some of that out and sort of seeing if people want to take it electively to begin with, maybe work it into a course from there. On the engineering side, though, we've been finding more and more that Elixir 
is allowing us to solve problems that we've kind of been sitting on as an organization. Maybe I shouldn't say that for like quite a while. So we're building a number of new internal tools to improve processes around how students kind of move through the registration pipeline, everything from that moment that you send in your application to that moment when you, you know, pay that initial tuition and are able to start accessing more content. Uh, We're using it to improve the way that we create curriculum content and make it available to students and make it available to other organizations. So things that we had done more in an ad hoc manner in the past or processes that we had built into to different of our applications, but that were like maybe super slow or bug prone are getting major facelifts and lots of love because of some of the things that Elixir allows us to do. And of course, this is, you know, what you hear a lot, right? The concurrency and the fault tolerance have allowed us to solve a lot of problems. We've had uh, Kate Travers. She's with Flatiron Schools. We've had her on before. And I know she had gone through the program uh, so she was an alumni and then ended up coming on as an employee at Flatiron Schools. What has your path been for Flatiron? Yeah. So if you were looking for like a different path through Flatiron, uh, I'm not it. Kate and I were classmates at Flatiron. We were in the same cohort and we graduated at the same time. Although she went ahead and immediately joined the engineering team, whereas I joined our education team. So I was writing curriculum content. I was teaching um, and I was working on like some internal tools for other teachers to use, which was super fun. I did that for maybe a year and a half, two years, at which point, you know, and I still love teaching and I miss it. And I always looking for ways to incorporate into my life, but I kind of felt like, okay, I went to this program to learn how to code. I've spent some time teaching, but if I'm even ever going to really be like the best teacher I can be, I need to get my hands dirty with some engineering work. So at that time I actually left Flatiron and I joined another company called Two Chords, like one of these big music distribution platforms where sadly we did not have an opportunity to use much Elixir, but it would have been a super great fit for a number of problems. Uh, and then I only recently came back and joined Flatiron on the engineering side, maybe about four months ago. It was nice to have some experience kind of outside of the Flatiron organization and see different ways of doing things, solve different problems. And I feel like I've kind of been able to bring some of these outside perspectives into the work that we do um, and still learn from all of the super smart and incredibly talented people that I get to work with. That's great. Yeah. I have also had uh, an employment situation where I was with a company for like three years and then I left for two years and then I came back um, to that company because of there was just a good opportunity and I kept, you know, it's, it's a testament to keeping, to not burning bridges, right? And keeping good relationships. Mm -hmm. But I will also, I totally agree that there is value in, getting that different perspective, just being exposed to different kinds of problems, like leaving Flatiron School, going out and doing something else. You're, you're encountering situations that you, even if you had taken the direct path into uh, the engineering track, that you're, you're encountering things that you, know, you probably would not have seen otherwise. And you grow in the process. And so that's one of the things that I've been able to do is like learn a lot of these things on this, on this other path and then come back and say, wow, I've learned all this stuff. We can really improve our processes, our systems, everything. So yeah, I think uh, that's a great, a great story. I, I like that path. It makes a lot of sense. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere available from any device uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. 
and it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. So does Flatiron School, I mean, we're talking about contributing to and using packages for Elixir. Does Flatiron School have a policy regarding how and when you contribute to uh, open source packages? Yeah, so we don't have like an official policy about how so much as we really heavily encourage it. And we have a couple of different structures and processes in place to support engineers to do that. So we have... um, a couple of like just little committees that have kind of come out of our engineering team because we have a pretty large engineering team at this point. I think we're at 30 plus right now. And one of our committees is like specifically geared towards open source contribution. And those folks kind of have a trail board and a calendar and they're always reaching out to people, identifying issues and having people take time out of their you know, busy schedules during the week, set aside some time to work on this stuff and get commits in. One of the things that we've been contributing to lately is Elixir School, which is like an open source Elixir curriculum. So it's not a program per se. And one of our team members, Bobby Grayson, is a maintainer of Elixir School. And he's been really great working with different members of our team to contribute content. Um, I have some stuff that's going to get merged in soon as well, uh, as do a couple of our team members. And if anybody else is interested, I definitely wanted to bring this up. They've got a ton of open issues. They have really strong documentation on how to contribute, what's needed, what lessons are missing. So I think that's a really great way to start contributing to Elixir open source. Even if you're a little like, oh, I'm a little scared to contribute like code, there's open issues about content, you know, describing all levels of Elixir programming. I think even some Elixir beginners would absolutely be able to contribute to that. That's a great resource just because like if you are a beginner and you're coming um, new to Elixir and you're getting involved, and you're like wanting to give back in that process, but you don't want to be wrong, right? Like you were saying before, like for contributing to the Elixir School GitHub project, you can submit a PR and you don't have to be right because it gets reviewed and it can, it can be improved. So you can, it's okay if you're wrong. And, and I think that's a great way that people can get involved still. Yeah, I think that's totally right. Like that's the point of opening a PR, right? You're not saying I'm done and it's right. Here it is. You're saying, somebody take a look at this and tell me what you think. And uh, we have another team member, uh, Matt Kluter is his name. He joined recently and he recently made some open source contributions, I think directly to the Ecto code base, which is awesome. And he is also pretty new to Elixir. And I think, I wish I could like sort of show it to you guys, but he wrote what is in my mind, like the perfect pull request comment on an open source contribution. He really clearly laid out like the problem he was trying to solve, the solution he had came up with, come up with. But then he took some time to kind of lay out like, and this is the ongoing question I have. And this is the specific thing that I'm not sure about that I want someone to take a look at and provide me feedback on. And what I love about this is from the point of view of a maintainer, 
that's like the perfect way to solicit feedback. But it also really highlights like you not knowing something or not being sure of something is not a reason to hold back from contributing to open source. It actually opens the door to way more productive conversations. And the, the conversation, the back and forth that happened after he opened that pull request was like really rich. It was really cool to see. And some really smart, interesting people contributed to it, like Jose Valim, who sort of invented Elixir, was like sort of part of that and gave some good feedback, all because he wasn't afraid to say, this is what I don't know. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really healthy way to look at a pull request, is that it's really the the opening to a conversation. Um, I've worked with a few folks and have have bumped in and rubbed shoulders with folks that, that don't really view it that way. They'll oftentimes play their their, their code a little close to the chest and then just kind of spring it out there and say, okay, there's my PR. It just needs a final review and emerge. Right. I love the idea of opening a dialogue. Well, the other thing is, is that the people that really do have the healthiest outlook are the ones that are continually trying to learn because this stuff's not staying still. You know, the Elixir community is still somewhat new. A lot of these technologies, I mean, we talked about the maturity of the ecosystem. I mean, these are things that we're dealing with and it's, it's all going to grow. You know, Ruby's a little more stable, but it's still growing. A lot of the other communities, JavaScript's going gangbusters in different directions. And so you, you have to constantly be learning. And people are going to be inventing better ways to be doing all kinds of different things. And so you, you have to take the time to do it. And, you know, I, I can't recommend highly enough, uh, just take a couple hours every week and learn something new. You know, it, we're talking like 15, 20 minutes a day. It doesn't have to be a major time commitment. But if you're not taking that time, you are falling behind. So it was either ridiculously awesome or ridiculously stupid because you all hesitated. I had nothing to add. It was well said. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I did have a question for Sophie, though. I was just curious, you know, you're with Flatiron Schools and then you kind of are part of this project of this Elixir school. I'm just curious as to how you mentioned you really enjoy teaching. So I'm just curious as to how you got involved with this. Were you, you know, I don't know, uh, I'm not, I don't know the history of Elixir School to know like um, where that really came from, how long that's been around even. Yeah, so I, I'm definitely no expert. I just know a little bit about it from having contributed a couple of lessons so far and having chatted with my coworker, Bobby, who's one of the maintainers. But it seems really cool. It's essentially just a group of people that felt really strongly that folks should know more about Elixir and that it should be more accessible. And they've just been working together independently to create a ton of beginner-friendly concepts uh, or content that kind of gives anybody an entryway into this topic that I think is kind of hard to find stuff on. So, of course, there's a documentation. There's more and more blog posts and, you know, little mini courses and articles out there, but you're probably not going to find, like, I don't know, a code school course on Elixir, you know, the way that you would on JavaScript or Ruby or Node or Express or any of those things. So I think they saw a need and they really wanted to fill it. And one of the things that I've really been seeing from them that I really love to see is this emphasis on A, beginner friendly, but not just in the sense of the content as beginner friendly, but contributing, coming on board as beginner friendly. So they really took advantage of, you know, the month of October being Hacktoberfest to set up some extremely well-documented issues and guidelines to get people contributing, to get people on board. And they're just really kind of open and welcoming to, to folks contributing. And I've had some good conversations through the pull requests and just kind of watching issues as they've aged. And yeah, I mean, I think I said it earlier, but I would encourage everyone to check it out and find something to contribute to. There's 
different levels of involvement. You can pick a shorter lesson, a longer one, something on a more beginner topic, something more advanced. You can suggest another lesson. That's another cool thing I've been seeing. People saying like, okay, you guys have got this outline. It seems pretty comprehensive, but what about this? What about that? Um, and just seeing it sort of grow organically from there. On second thought, I think I have seen Elixir School before, but I think it's been recently reskinned. Is that or rethemed? Is that what's going on? I think it may have been. Yeah, I think okay. it looks pretty nice. Another nice thing about it, I don't know if this is theme related, but they've also been putting a really high priority on getting it translated into lots and lots of languages, which is nice. I don't really think I've seen that been given such a high priority in, in other open source projects. Yeah, so that might be a good way people can contribute, even if they're not, they wouldn't consider themselves a guru in the language. They're like, I understand what's going on with the language and I, I natively speak German or Norwegian or, you know, some other language and they can help with that translation. So yeah, that's a great way to contribute. Yeah, absolutely. So is Jokin a uh, project by Flatiron School or was this a project that you found, found the problems with and then fixed? Yeah, no, it's not a Flatiron School project. We don't maintain or contribute to it. We considered opening a pull request to address the issue that we came up against. But by the time we realized how wrong we were about like the expiration validation, for example, they had already come out with a new version. So it's a cool thing that you also see in the Elixir community is like fast iteration, people always jumping in to solve these problems and make things more clear and more explicit. Yeah. So if we had only solved this problem several weeks later, it would have been a lot easier. <laughs> yeah. So is there anything else that you all are working on now over there at Flatiron School? Oh, lots of stuff. Let's see. Um, so we, a couple of months ago, started an engineering team blog, Flatiron Labs blog. And it's been really cool to see it grow. I've, I tried to start a, a tech blog at my previous company and it just kind of didn't take off. But seeing the way that people got really excited to contribute to it and really have been pushing out so much content has been really cool. And seeing a lot of that content be about Elixir has also been really cool. I've been really impressed with how quickly people seem to have ramped up on Elixir, myself included. We've got maybe three separate Greenfield Elixir apps all being worked on almost exclusively by people where this is going to be their first real production experience with Elixir. And I'm just like blown away by the problems that we've been able to solve and the way that we've been doing knowledge sharing within the organization and just kind of out with the wider community. So the types of problems you're tackling now that you said you're sitting on waiting for a technology stack like the Beam or, or Elixir or Erlang, had you tried those before and, and other technologies and it just didn't work? Or did you just kind of um, anticipate that it, it was a problem that you couldn't solve? without something like the beam? Yeah, so I think there's, um, I can speak probably more directly to the one problem we've been looking at on, on my team with this sort of lesson or curriculum content creation process. And in the past, it's been a pretty slow process to go through the work of taking a set of lessons and we call it like deploying it to or making it available to a class or a batch of students. And we were able to get some degree of concurrency in the processing of an individual lesson or processing of a set of lessons, getting them into the hands of students just by leveraging not Sidekick, but Sneakers, uh, which allows us to interface with RabbitMQ. So that was sort of our solution up until very recently, but it's still Ruby 
it's still rails sneakers is not my favorite gem the documentation for that one is not particularly robust and there's a lot of things that you cannot do with sneakers that i've you know come to expect out of let's say sidekick so it's still been a kind of buggy process and still a fairly slow process like let's say you have 100 lessons and you want to deploy or make them available to this class of 30 students it still takes a little while for all 100 of those to go through the process and that process uh, is essentially like finding the GitHub repo that houses it, copy it into a GitHub repo that's available to students, set up all the permissioning, as well as update a set of records internally on our end. So, you know, you can imagine that Elixir has made that process like so, so super fast, just in terms of spinning up these gen servers that process each lesson concurrently and being able to kind of create this structure of supervised gen servers that concurrently process the creation or the deployment of lessons in a set has been really nice because when we hit these snags or these bugs that we've come to expect, you know, you're talking a lot to GitHub, there's a lot of API communication, we can recover from it so gracefully, try again or not, depending on the scenario, report it back up the chain to the client that's making the request. And we're just seeing, you know, faster deploy times when we have to get a set of lessons into students' hands. And we're seeing that the system is recovering from the kind of bugs or errors that maybe would have prevented a set of lessons from getting into students' hands. Instead, we're properly handing, handling these kinds of errors so that maybe the one that failed is kind of taken out of the mix and it doesn't catastrophically impact the deployment of the rest of the 99 of them. No, that makes total sense. And the fact that you were using Rabbit and MQ before even shows you you reached for Erlang even, even when you're on the Ruby stack, right? Yeah. Yeah. But sadly, I think like... Um, for whatever reason, the Ruby community, I guess, hasn't put a premium on interacting with things like Rabbit. So I think the tooling to make that communication happen is is just not there. This is the part where I say bad things about sneakers, but I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> so what does your typical uh, stack look like? I mean, you mentioned Rabbit. You mentioned some of these other options. But yeah, I mean, are you backing on to Postgres? Are you, you know, are you running, I don't know, Phoenix? Or is this more just hey, we've got a job to get done, and so here's an Elixir process, or how does that all work? So our, our monolith, <laughs> the application that is learn.co, if you sort of go and do any lessons uh, online for the Flatiron School, is a Ruby on Rails app. It's pretty old at this point. It's been around for as long as Flatiron has been around. So it has all of the ups and downs of like a getting craftier every day uh, code base. Pretty standard stack for the monolith. If we are backing it in a Postgres DB. We've got all the many different it's kind of like what is that like when you're looking at like a geographical sort of fossil the different eras of like whatever the development of the planet earth you kind of see oh this is where we had angular this is where we had backbone this is where we had whatever marionette but more and more react on the front end if not just vanilla js but as our organization is growing as we're opening up more campuses as we're running more programs as we're partnering with other schools and institutions we are finding a lot of new needs for new features and for improving some of the processes that we've relied on for so long like our 
curriculum deployment process, like our sort of student registration process, we're reaching for Alexa or we're reaching for Phoenix. So I think we have something like three new-ish Greenfield Elixir umbrella apps that are meeting various of these needs right now that are in development. And most of those have like a Phoenix front end. One of the child apps in the umbrella will be a Phoenix app. And then however many other just plain old Elixir apps sitting in the umbrella as well to handle whatever bits and pieces of functionality uh, are needed. Won't be long before you guys can just reach for live view for all of your uh, yeah. front end. Yeah, I'm really excited for live view. I looked at that uh, video that I guess Chris McCord put out. Was it like yesterday or something? It looks really cool. Yeah, and we yeah. did an interview with Chris about live view not that long ago. So folks can go check that out as well. Put a link in the show notes for that. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. Was there anything else we should jump on before we do, go to picks? Mm. Uh, lots of lots of quiet. We'll We'll take that as a... Let, let's do us some picks. For you, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings... Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Mark, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. So recently, a couple of weeks ago, we had on um, Eric Ostrich talking about X Venture, and he was kind enough to join our Utah Elixir meetup that we host, and he joined us remotely. And I had to op- I was able to record that because it was done through Zoom, and uh, so I just finished the edits to it and put it up on YouTube this morning. So I was just going to share the link to that. So what it is, is it's the introduction to XVenture as a user and as an admin, and then kind of starting to look at some of the code. Um, it's something, it's a project that we're going to keep looking at as part of our, our meetup. And so I just wanted to share that with anyone else who's interested and wanted to follow up on some of the things we talked about before. So that's it for me. Nice. I was actually going to go to that and then my wife wound up being sick and basically looked at me and said, you're not leaving me here with these kids when I feel so terrible. So, <laughs> Well, you can watch the, the, the video and, and because you missed it. So it'll be perfect. <laughs> Sounds good. Nate, what are your picks? So I just won today. When I was younger, I played a lot of racquetball, even worked at a racquetball uh, club and got pretty decent at the sport. And just recently, uh, like in the, within the last week, I found uh, a fitness center that has four racquetball courts close to me. And so I've been going uh, on and off for the last week and I've really enjoyed it. So my pick is racquetball and just getting out and doing something physical. Sometimes uh, we developers, especially me, uh, have a hard time remembering to get out and do something physical. And so it's been really good. Uh, it's It's been good for my mental health and for, well, I'm just sore right now, but eventually it will be good for my physical health. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I haven't played racquetball in a long time. Maybe I'll have to make my way up to Heber. I'm going to jump in with a couple of picks. So one pick that I have, 
And this is something that I'm using. Um, I, I checked on it because we recorded Ruby Rogues live and we streamed it to Facebook. And I'm hoping to do that with some of the other shows. And uh, I had a workflow set up so that it would rebroadcast that to YouTube so that we could, you know, get a few more people watching live if they wanted to see it. Well, as it turns out, it was disabled. <laughs> so I turned it on and it turns out that you can also use it to push your podcasts to YouTube, like all of your back episodes. And so uh, that's what I've set up now. Um, so it's pushing all the My JavaScript stories up. I'll probably hook it up to some of the other ones. Um, if we're doing this live video and we live stream the video, then I'll probably just have the video out there. But uh, for some of these other shows and just to get some backlogs in place, I'm, I'm really digging it. It's called repurpose.io. And uh, yeah, so you can just do the streaming that way. And then um, <clears throat> another pick that I have, I think I picked it on the show before, but uh, um, I found... So, so it's kind of a roundabout pick, but I, I missed the World Cup, um, which is, a, it's a tragedy in my house if I miss the World Cup. Um, and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't watch it because we had just cut the cable and I didn't really have a good way to record in the stream of the games. Um, and yes, I know who won. Um, I don't remember much more than that, thankfully. And I really enjoy watching the soccer matches. So Fox Sports is the um, company that streamed the matches. But I couldn't stream it to my Apple TV because I didn't have a subscription, blah, 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 blah. Well, it turns out that um, the Sling Blue, um, uh, Sling, dot, Sling TV Blue uh, package has Fox Sports in it. So I upgraded my subscription and now I have it. So I'm going to pick Sling TV and Fox Sports for that. And uh, yeah, um, it also turns out that they have Sci-Fi Channel on there. So I think I might be able to stream The Expanse which is something that I picked before. So that's, that's kind of where I was heading with that. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. Yep, so I like more TV. I like The Expanse too. It's a good show. Yeah. Uh, Sophie, do you have some picks for us? Yeah. So um, one of the things I definitely wanted to plug was Elixir School, which I already had a chance to talk uh, your guys' ear off about. So that's certainly one of them. Uh, another thing I wanted to share was an article that recently came out on the, the Flatiron blog written by one of our engineers, Tracy Lum, describing some of the technologies that back this really cool thing that we basically invented that we call the Learn IDE. So IDE, right? Integrated Development Environment. You're probably pretty used to like using some sort of little REPL on the browser or on a tool like REPLit. Or I know a lot of these Code Academy, Code School, whatever, don't do allow you to execute little bits of code throughout the course of like going through um, online learning material. This is not that, this is way cooler than that. This is essentially like a virtual, it's really like a virtual machine that we're spinning up for you in your browser where you have an entire development environment where you are running tests, installing dependencies, doing everything that you would do on your own local machine available to you in the browser to make our content more accessible and kind of lower that barrier to entry in terms of environment setup for our students. And it is made possible because of Elixir, because of Phoenix, because of Docker, um, because of AWS. And it's honestly really unique and powerful and awesome. And I highly recommend checking out uh, an article on the Flatiron Labs Medium blog called How We Built the Learn IDE in Browser. Awesome. Now, yeah. uh, one other question I have for you is if people want to find you online, where, where do they go? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can find me on Twitter 
my Twitter handle is sm underscore DeBenedetto. And you can also check out my technical blog, which is called thegreatcodeadventure.com. I post on that pretty frequently and it's been a lot of Elixir stuff lately. And I've also been working on and publishing a bi-weekly newsletter geared more towards beginners called Break-In. So you can look for that at break-in.tech. And that's really looking to create content around not how to learn to code because there's tons of stuff out there and Flatiron School, I think, for example, does it pretty well, but how to learn to be a developer, right? How do we work together? How do we solve problems? How do we pair program or go on an interview? Um, all that kind of stuff that like no one really tells you when you're just starting out. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Sophie. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to meet all you guys. Likewise. Yeah. We'll wrap this one up and we will catch you all next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.